This episode of the Detox Podcast is brought to you by Rebel Riot Printing. Celebrating their 10th year in business, Rebel Riot is locally owned and family operated, offering custom printed tees with no minimums and fast turnaround. And by Bitsbox. Bitsbox teaches kids to code. Real JavaScript, real devices, and really fun. Hands down the most fun way for curious kids ages 6 to 14 to learn coding. Use promo code DETOX for $20 off any subscription order of $50 or more. That's D-T-A-L-K-S Detox for $20 off any order of $50 or more with Bitsbox. Well, hello there, Detox Podcast listeners. I'm Margaret Abels, and I'm, Amy, what would you say? I like to say I'm like a laid-back, let-it-ride kind of a mom. You're laissez-faire. I'm laissez-faire. It'll all work out. And I'm not. I'm more of a by-the-book, organized, never-met-a-list-I-didn't-like kind of parent. The good news about that, though, is if you don't like doing research, Amy does it for you. She's going to figure it out, guys. Together, we host the comedy parenting podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood, where every week we solve a vexing parenting dilemma with actual real research device. And also a ton of laughs. So don't worry. It's not all seriousness. We need both. Join us. You can find us at whatfreshhellpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Detox Podcast, a podcast for dads where this dad talks about life, kids, and stuff. I am your host, Joe Shaw. And on today's episode, I am very honored to have Mr. Jason Odell Williams. He is a actor, a playwright, a screenwriter, and a most importantly, a dad. Jason, thanks so much for being on the show today. How are you doing? I'm good, Joe. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, uh, Jason, I had seen you. Uh, for those that are wondering how Jason ended up on the show, I saw that when we did our episode, uh, when I did the episode with uh, Sahana, the host of Brainchild, uh, not too long ago, I saw Jason tweeting about the episode, and I went, who is this guy? And come to find out, he is involved with Brainchild. <laughs> He's one of the writers and one of the uh, uh magic men behind the scenes doing a bunch of different stuff for that show. And I said, well, we got to, we heard from Sahana. Now I got to get your perspective on not only brainchild, but just everything that's uh, all about your life. And and so I'm very excited to have you on the show and, and let's just kind of dive right into uh, brainchild if you don't mind. So, so talk me through how, sure. how you kind of, how that creative process worked for you. How did you get started with it? how did you get involved with it? And kind of what was your yeah. all encompassing role with the show? So uh, a friend of mine, Jerry Colbert, um, and Adam Davis, who became a friend of mine, but I knew Jerry before uh, the show even started, but uh, he, they worked on a show called Brain Games. They created a show called Brain Games for Nat Geo, okay. and um, when they started working on that show, Jerry called me in and said, do you want to you know, work on the show? And I had never done television at all, um, but he was like, I I think you could figure it out. So I, he knew I was a writer, a playwright, um, and he he said something I still always quote all the time. He said, eh, "If you can write plays, you can write for TV." <laughs> I was like, "Really?" Um, but so actually, I, I, he ended up getting. I ended up working on a show before that, just kind of also through him uh, before Brain Games got ready. And then when Brain Games was ready, I had a little bit of TV nuts and bolts under my belt, so I wasn't a complete novice. But still, um, I came on in uh, like late December two thousand and twelve. I was just supposed to produce one episode, and I remember the 
first three weeks, I thought I was going to get fired every day. Oh, no. Uh, I, just, I, just was like, I was like, I'm not doing this well. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm a fraud. I'm a fraud. I'm a fraud. Uh, and, then, and then we had our first screening of our episode, which is like you, you screen a rough cut. And it was Jerry and Adam and two of the producers. And, and they were like laughing in all the right spots and like happy with it. And they were like, all right, this is great. So I was like, OK, maybe maybe I'll maybe they'll ask me to stick around. Right. Maybe you're um, not a fraud. <laughs> maybe I'm not a fraud. But, uh, I, I think a lot of people have that that feeling early on in jobs sure um, and then so i they just said okay how about you do a second episode and a third episode and, and i ended up getting paired with a really great editor eddie gutch uh, he and i worked together essentially for the next four years um on that show four seasons on that show um and that was kind of the beginning and so i i i produced uh for season two and then for season three, um, I was helping write some episodes as well. They hire several writers because it's it's a it's a daunting process. I think I probably wrote two scripts for that year. Okay. Um, and so then I, I I did that for season three and four, and then I think season five I was probably just producing just because of the way the schedule turned out. And then uh, Brain Games ended. You know, you know, like all shows eventually do end. Um, and I, I worked in you know doing sort of that kind of stuff, still writing plays all throughout that and then um uh sometime last summer 2018 um I, again get a call from jerry saying hey man we sold the show to netflix you know you're one of our first calls you want in i was super excited i mean we heard rumors that maybe something was coming right um and so i was um i was one of the writers they had four writers there were four of us um i, I think i was the only writer that was in new york also working on the show um they hired some outside writers to to just work on the scripts. And then what was cool about that is that I wrote three scripts and then was able to then go into production with them, post-production with them, as well as post-producing three other episodes. So I post-produced three. Um, another producer there, Dan Bromfield, was also like really integral part of the team. He and I basically post-produced all of the episodes. Adam and Jerry are overseeing everything. Um, the show is really their voice and it really is their, no pun intended, it's their brainchild. <laughs> um, but it's like a it's a really fun team effort. I, so I, I worked on Brain Games and Brain Child, and, and in between, I've probably worked on, I mean, maybe fifteen other TV shows, and they are far and away the best shows that I've ever gotten to work, work on. And everybody that worked on them always, do we get to do Brain Child again? Um, so we're just really hoping for season two. Um, that would be a dream come true for all of us because it's not only a fun show to make; it's a fun show to watch, which yeah. is, I think. For for the for the person who actually made it, normally you get sick of the show that you you wrote. Like sure. The other shows I work on, you're really ex you're really excited for sort of the first rough cut, and then you're like, I'm done. I can't watch this anymore. We always had fun watching it. We always laughed in the room watching cuts. Um. Uh. So yeah, that's the that's the kind of the, the basic story. That's really cool. Yeah. No, I know that. I mean, <clears throat> show we love working. It's a great team. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no. I mean, uh, it's it's a really good show and it's really fun and it's something that I know like my whole family enjoys it's we learn a lot we laugh we en enjoy it and it's just it's a great show so once again if you haven't checked out brainchild do so and also check out brain games and uh, we'll put the links for those shows in the show notes as well uh but jason i want to talk about a little bit so you've got some stage experience as well you went to school to to mm -hmm. to be an actor and i know that uh or I should say, let me back up. You you got your, if I'm reading this correctly, you got your uh, BA from the University of Virginia, and you got an MFA, a Master of Fine Arts, from the Actor Studio Drama School in NYC. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. Yeah. Okay. So what I, what drew I, you to that? Yeah. 
Oh, I was just going to say, what, uh, what drew you to to choose acting and to kind of choose that career path? Because I also got a, a BA in theater when I went to school, um, but uh, my life took a little bit of a different track. So I'm, I'm interested because at one point in time, I was an aspiring playwright myself, and and then uh, life yeah. life took a turn as well. But I, I'm curious as to, to find out kind of what drew you to this path, what caused you to go the way you did, and how did you kind of end up uh, being much more of a playwright, screenwriter, yeah. that kind of a thing. Well, we've talked about screenwriting, but the playwriting aspect. Yeah, well, so I, 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 I kind of, I don't know. I, I didn't really think too much about it as a kid. I always loved TV. That was one of the things I just loved the most. Um, I, I loved sitcoms. Um, and then in fourth grade, we did a play just because you had to. And right. I was like, oh, this is fun. I remember getting my, I remember getting my first laugh, and I actually stole somebody else's bit from the dress rehearsal. Um, he did this thing that got a laugh and then I was like, oh, okay. And then I stole it for the show. And then I remember like looking at him thinking he would be mad. Like, oh, you stole my bit. And he wasn't, he was like, oh, that was a good one. And I was like, oh, okay. Cause he wasn't ever going to be an actor, this kid. And I was like, oh, all right. So this is, this is, this is acting. Right. Um, and then, and then in, in, in middle school, I did a play just because I don't know. I mean, I sort of thought, oh, I can do that. And then in high school, it was just, we had a great art school where I went to school at McDonough in, um, outside of Baltimore, Maryland. Um, and then when I went to college I, at UVA, I just thought, well, I'll take a, an acting class just to see what's up, but I'll, you know, I'll wait to decide. And I just kind of fell in love with that drama department, that theater department. And it's sort of the only place that I felt like I know what I'm doing. Right. Um, always just felt comfortable on the stage, really liked doing it. Um, and I, so I did that for a long time and I went to graduate school in New York. Um, but I was, when I moved to New York, you, you have so much downtime, you know, even between your sort of, you know, cater waitering jobs and all that stuff. Um, you're just kind of sitting around with like a lot of idle time. And so I just started writing to, to, I don't know, just expend that, uh, creative energy, uh, not really knowing anything about, you know, writing movies or writing plays or anything, just kind of doing it. Um, but I continued acting, I continued acting. And then, uh, grad school, I, I think I just kind of got actually burned out. It was three years is pretty intense for sure. acting. Right. Um, and I did some plays, but I just was not, I just wasn't having as much fun. And then I finally did a, I used to do a lot of Shakespeare and stuff. And then I finally started doing new plays and I kind of saw, Oh, this is cool. I like new plays. And I saw it also wasn't like rocket science. I was like, it's not, you know, it's, it's not as, um, it felt so unobtainable and impossible for a long time. I, you always think like, oh, Tennessee Williams and Arthur Miller and, you know, no one can write a play like that. And then when you start to see, oh, well, it's not, you know, um, A, they were working on this place for a long time, but you start to see some newer plays and I just felt like, oh, I, I kind of like that and I feel like I could do that. I mean, I won't be good at it right away, but I just feel like I could try. Sure. And so um, – Still acting, but then I turned to my wife, who I met in grad school, Charlotte Cohn, and um, we're, we're still married, married almost 18 years. Um, and I just said, you know, I, I think I just want to write something because we're sitting around here, you know, waiting for the phone to ring. I was like, we know a lot of actors. We have a lot of friends. I was like, I'm just going to write a play, and we'll get our friends over here, and we'll read it, and we'll see if it's any good. Um, and that was, I, that's, that was in 2008. I started writing my first play, and then um, – in 2013, it we we did the show off Broadway in New York, um, and that was having the done uh, it in 2011 in, at a couple of regional theaters. Um, that was handled with care, so correct? It was just kind of, 
that was handled with care exactly. Okay. Um, my wife is from Israel, and so I thought I'm going to write a play for her that's specific for her. So the character speaks Hebrew and English in that play. Oh, that's awesome. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we did that, and that was kind of that was 2011. And I was still sort of toying with the idea of acting. In fact, I was going to be in one of those productions, one of those early productions in 2011. Uh, and then I just thought, oh, you know, I'm going to take a back seat and, and really just be the playwright and, and make sure that, that the play is correct, you know, sitting here in the audience. Um, and then it was like in 2012 and Jerry called and I started working in TV and I was like, oh, I, I remember I had an acting job at a Shakespeare company in New Jersey. Um, and I was really excited about getting that job. It was like $850 a week for as an actor. That's like a ton. Uh, and then I got this job offer for the for the TV show. Uh, it was three times as much money and three times as long of a contract. And I just thought, I can't say no to that. Um, right. and so I, I sort of never looked back and, and, and I, and I really, I do love it. I love working in, in TV, especially when it's a good show like brain games or brain child. Um, and it just kind of keeps you creative and loose. And so on the side, you can still find time to write. And so I've somehow managed to figure out ways to find pockets of time, either on the subway commuting or at nights or on the weekends and just, you know, bang out a page or two of a play or a script or something. And I've just kind of kept it up since there. Sure. Yeah, that's really, that's really fascinating because it, it is true. I mean, that is something that um, we, I spoke with uh, Mike Spore, the parenting editor on BuzzFeed uh, not too long ago. And he, he was talking about the fact that, you know, you, you really, you have pockets of time that you don't realize. It's one of those things where you, you, you think when you're thinking of creating something, say a play or creating in his case to post or, or what have you, you're, mm-hmm. you, you start thinking like, oh, I don't really have time because I'm parenting, I'm working, I'm doing all these other things. But then you, you, when you start breaking it down, you're like, well, I've got an hour here at night or I've got two hours here in the afternoon or I've got 30 minutes there. And he's like, and you start learning how to maximize those small pockets of time and just it adds up, you know, just like a, a little bit of change here if you're saving up kind of a thing. And it really kind of opened my eyes to the fact that it's like, yeah, you, you really do have a lot more time than you think about because of the fact that you're, you're, you're trying to set aside chunks of time when in reality, rarely anybody has chunks of time. You just more or less have lots of little pockets of time to get things done. Right. You know, I learned how to how to write quickly. People always ask me, how do you write so fast? And, and I was like, I don't write fast. I just I just um, I, I, I do 15 minutes here and there all the time. And I learned how to do that. Actually, my wife was acting in a play in San Francisco and I was the sort of stay at home dad. My daughter was, you know, seven, eight, nine months at the time. And, you know, she'd take a nap or she'd uh, actually that's probably really all it was. It was just taking a nap. Sure. Um, but, you know, it's like an hour, hour and a half. Yep. A couple times a day. And I was like, what am I going to do? You know, there's only so many times you have to do laundry. And I'm like, I, so that's why I, I would be writing. I was like, oh, I can just do that. I can do 20 minutes, 30 minutes here. Um, and then the minute she cries or needs something, you're like, oh, I got to be with you. And so you just learn how to like literally turn it, you know, ramp off to 100 and then turn it off um, and then come back to it uh, later. And that's actually been really helpful. Um, sort of a helpful skill that I kind of lucked into, sort of backed into, which is learning how to write quickly and in short bursts. Right. Um, yeah. And and I found that with writing or with, uh, <clears throat> in my case, doing editing or creating work, whether it's for the podcast or something similar, I find that a lot of times when I'm, when I, I might be in the, in the middle of a thought, right? Or, or writing something or creating something or whatever it is, I'm kind of right, right in the middle. But if I put a pause on it and then go 
work, help with my kids or, or do whatever else happens, I'm finding that when I come back to it, I have a different perspective and a different thought than I had when I left. And I, I think that I think that there is some science, scientific. I, I I might have even I might even be stealing this from Brainchild. I don't remember, but where it's uh, <laughs> it, it's like uh, it's working. Your brain is working on it in the back of your mind, almost like you're cooking something Absolutely. and you put it on the back burner, and it's it's still simmering, it's still yeah. working, but you're yeah. you're not intently focused on it. So when you come back, it, yeah. it's it's fresh and ready for you to to get a new perspective on. And that I I almost think that's more valuable in writing a bit pausing, coming back. Okay. Now I'm refreshed and looking at it a different way as opposed to writing three, four five hours straight through without a break of any kind. Oh yeah. No, I can't, I absolutely can't write straight like that. And what I do, if I ever do have a long chunk of time, I'm never writing just one thing for that long stretch. I'm usually like, like, you know, I can write for, I don't know, maybe 20, 30 minutes on one thing. And then you'll hit a little stumbling block and I'll go, Okay, either I'm gonna like check my email now, or I'm gonna like bounce over to another writing project. So that's why I'm always writing like two or three things at the same time. Sure. Um, and it, it is. It's like you said. It's like it's almost like you're you're downloading something on your computer in the background. Like it's happening. Right. Uh, but you can be doing other things, and then all of a sudden you come back to it. and You're like, oh, oh, now it's finished. It's done. Yes. Um, your brain is like working on it without you even knowing it. Yeah. Right. Exactly. It is so cool to me when I, when I come back and, and I'm just like, I'm looking at it and I went, I don't know why I didn't realize this the first time I was working on this, you know, but, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. but it's so cool. So speaking of writing still, you've had a couple of very successful plays. One we already mentioned, Handle with Care, but the other one, the most recent one is Church and State. And I want you to talk to me a little bit, uh, talk to our listeners about what is church and state. First of all, I want to get your perspective on that. And then additionally, I really want to talk about what drew you to writing it. And, and then I want to kind of also get into maybe what kind of controversies or feedback you've received as a result of it doing so well and getting so much, uh, press and attention. Yeah. Um, well, so Church and State is a is a play about a Republican senator from North Carolina who's up for re-election. It's three days before the election. Uh, there was a school shooting at his children's, his son's school, uh, 10 days before. And he is starting to rethink his stance on Second Amendment, uh, but also starting to kind of question his faith in God. Uh, and the play is 75 minutes Um and it's four characters, and it's about the senator debating those issues with his um, very devout Christian wife and his uh, Jewish campaign manager. Both are obviously his wife is a woman, and the campaign manager is a woman. Um, and they are uh, trying to talk him off the ledge, so to speak, get right. him to come to his senses. Sure. Um, the play has a lot of humor. It has a lot of humor sort of from the get-go, and it's not it's not till about 10, 15 pages in that you sort of understand, oh, there was a shooting, there was a funeral earlier today, um, and it kind of knocks you off kilter, sort of tone-wise, it bounces back and forth, um, it gets pretty serious in the middle, and then it gets kind of funny again, and then I, I think there's probably some laughs up until about 10 minutes till the end, um, and it was a play that I had been thinking about and talk about sort of something on the back burner for a while. Right. Uh, it's a play in 2007 when the shooting at Virginia tech happened, I went to UVA in Charlottesville. And when I saw on TV, the candlelight vigils in Charlottesville for their fellow students in Blacksburg, oh, wow. those 
schools, Virginia and Virginia Tech are like, you know, football rivals, whatever. Um, and so when they sort of did that, it just really hit me. Like I was like, you know, weeping, watching it on, you know, CNN here at home. Right. Uh, and I didn't really know why. I didn't know why it hit me. And I was like, oh, and I just kind of was like, are, are guns a problem in this country? Like I had not really – it hadn't really hit me. I hadn't really sort of focused on it. Columbine happened. Um, I was just out of college. I was in New York. I was, you know, way into my own life. I kind of knew his thing, but it didn't It didn't really dent my consciousness. So when Virginia Tech happened for me, that was kind of the first big event. And then a few years later in 2011, when Gabby Giffords was shot um, out in Arizona, I thought, oh, well, that's insane but at least maybe now they'll do something right because sure. their own was was shot right uh and of course nothing happened and then it was not that much longer it was december 2012 um yeah that's right it was right when i started uh brain games but it was december 2012 uh sandy hook happened right um and our daughter was the exact same age as as, as the kids in that school at the time um and so you know i, I think like lots of parents um in that moment, you just think, oh, my gosh, like a school where I can't even believe it, an elementary school. How, how in the world can that happen? So I was really, really ang- sad and angry for about three weeks. And then after the holidays, I remember I came back and I just said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to write a play about this. This is something I had been thinking about kind of for a while since right. 2007. Um, and so I just wrote a very, very angry 30 page <laughs> essentially <laughs> diatribe about this issue. Um my wife read it and she was like, this is interesting, but it's just like an angry monologue. Um, and she said, I think there's something here. Keep working on it. And so I, I did. And, and, um, uh, eventually showed it to, uh, a director, a guy who runs a theater in Rochester, Ralph Moranto. It's called the JCC center stage in Rochester. He had directed a production of handle with care and was always very like, Hey man, whenever you're working on something new, just show it to me. Like, I want to see anything you're working on. And you never know if people are serious about that, but I was sure. like, "Hey, I've got this play." I, he had posted something on Facebook too that was kind of about, you know, the Second Amendment, and we need to rethink it and something like that. And I was like, and he seemed to be very political. And I was like, "Oh, you know, I didn't know you were into that kind of stuff, so maybe you like this play." And he was like, "Yeah, send it to me." And he was like, "I think there's something here. It needs work, but I think there's something here. Would you develop it with me if I agree to do the world premiere?" And I was like, "Oh my God, yes!" And so we developed it over the next two years. Um, I was while I was working on Brain Games, I remember literally having phone calls with him in those offices. Um, and uh, so then in 2016, um, he, we found sort of together uh, another theater in Los Angeles, the Skylight Theater in Los Angeles, and they came on to do um, the world premiere productions, what they call a rolling world premiere. Okay. Um, for the thing called a, Nas- a national new play network. Uh, and there were a lot of like steps in between there. I had some friends of mine who run a, Actress Salon in D.C., Liz Maman and Beth Hilton, um, and they did the very first public reading of it in D.C., which was really cool. Oh, wow. Um, and they – I was like, I don't know if this is any good. I don't know what's going to happen. And it was an amazing reaction. I mean, obviously, it's like mostly friends and family and stuff, but there were a bunch of strangers in the room too. And that's when, that's when sort of I knew. I was like, oh, I think this is a play that's going to strike a chord with people. Um, and then, and then the, those uh, other productions happened in L.A. and in – Rochester, and then my wife, um, who had uh, been involved uh, as a producer of Handle with Care, um, said she would never produce again. It was too hard. It was too difficult. Uh, she said, oh, I think I have to produce this one. 
um, because it's too good. Uh, and so she then went about the daunting task of, of, you know, trying to raise money, which she did, uh, for the off-Broadway production. So we did it in 2017 here in New York. Um, and right at the end of that run, uh, a woman named Kara Baker came from Gigi Films, and she said, I love this play. I want to option it. So it is now currently under option. We wrote the sort of first draft of the screenplay, and they are they have a director, and they're working on another draft. And their hope is that the movie will be filmed sometime this year and come out sometime in 2020, right before the presidential election. Oh, wow. Um, and, and in the meantime, since we did the play in 2017 um, – there have been 20-something regional productions across the country, and there will be another 20 or so uh, this year. There will be a grand total of 46 regional productions in 26 different states um, just in two and a half years. Wow. Um, and it's in, it's in like, you know, professional theaters, big theaters. It's in small theaters, colleges, universities, high schools are doing it. Um, and red states and blue states, and, and you're asking about sort of the reaction. Right. Um, it's, it, you know, I don't know a lot of people are going to, you know, say to me, hey, I hate your play. You're sure. Idiot. This yeah. thing sucks. Fair. Uh, there hasn't been that kind of controversy. It's been universally um, praised, you know, by critics for the most part um, and audiences really especially. Um, and it's really fun to see the productions in the red states where people go, hey, this is, there's no political agenda here. I mean, I, I feel like the play um, does treat everybody fairly but i think in the end it kind of comes out comes out on the side of like common sense which is we need to do something about guns sure um and i feel like it's very obvious kind of what my point of view is but sees it says like he had a woman in new york who's like i'm a trump voter i'm a gun owner i thought i was going to hate every second uh i i loved it and i was really happy with how fairly you treated everybody and how you made um these characters real and likable and um honest and human and so i feel like we've kind of struck a chord and I, I you know I know it's just a very small um pebble in a big pond of this conversation this conversation about guns in America but I feel like if we can have hundreds and hundreds and thousands of these conversations uh, and that's what theater's good at it's like you know because you're all in the same room live you know you're not at home watching it on your screen by yourself right um but if you're going out you know with your fellow neighbors you're sitting shoulder to shoulder with them you know breathing the same air in that theater uh, you can't help but sort of see common ground and kind of see like, oh man, maybe we should do something about it. So um, that's a very, very long answer. To no, your question, no, no, no. That's the yeah. that was the impetus of the play. That was the impetus of the play, and that's sort of the history of the play. And 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 the good thing about it is that I feel like it's not over. I mean, we're we're actually doing something really interesting. Um, the one year anniversary of the shootings at Parkland is next week. But I've, February 14th, and um, a company called New York Rep, who were one of the co-producers on the play in New York, uh, partnered with the Brady Campaign. Um, the Brady Campaign is a one of the first sort of um, gun violence prevention uh, nonprofits. Um, Jim Brady, who was shot uh, protecting Ronald Reagan, I believe. Um, right. Yeah. Anyway, they, they partnered with the Brady Campaign, and they have found seven universities. Uh, we're, we're working on a few more, actually. We might get some more last minute. But so far, seven colleges across the country are going to do a reading of Church and State on February 14th, sort of to commemorate the Parkland shooting. Oh, wow. Um, so that's re that's really cool. That's, and maybe it'll become a, a yearly tradition. I don't know. Um, so I, I feel like the play's got you know a long life. Uh, I've always said I hope it has a short life, actually, because maybe um, Congress would actually do something and pass gun laws, and then you don't need the play anymore. Um, right. But – 
unfortunately, unfortunately, you know, I wrote the play 2015-16, and when they were in rehearsal, Orlando happened, and right. then Las Vegas, and then Parkland, and then Pittsburgh, and Santa Fe, and there's just been so many um, since we since we opened. And there's actually a part in the play where the senator kind of lists cities. Uh, he just kind of names them. He's like Columbine, Newtown, Tucson, Aurora, Park, you know, uh, Orlando. Uh, and then we had to add to that list um, to keep the play current, which is just sort of tragic and right. It's absurd. pretty horrible, but, um, yeah. But I, yeah, yeah. I think the play is um, it's doing well, and I think hopefully if if the um, if the movie comes out, that'll it'll be able to reach more people quickly across the country, which is you know always been the hope. Our goal was to try and get it in all fifty states, so we're a little over halfway there. Right, and I know <clears throat> one. One thing that has always been interesting to me is I felt that being here in Texas, I've had a very unique perspective in that I have friends and family members that are on both sides of the aisle, so to speak. And and mm-hmm. and one thing that I really try and do through this show and in real life as well outside of this show is I try and bring interesting conversations to the forefront so that way we can we can learn more and we can learn from each other. And I want to be able to sit down and break bread and have conversations because I feel that right now we're very divisive. We being America are very divisive yeah. because we just want to shout at each other. You know, we want like you know, you'll have people that will say like ban all guns. And then you'll have people say like, give me all the guns. And it's like, I feel like there's a lot in the middle that we're not talking about because we're just shouting back and forth. And it's really refreshing to hear that you wrote a play that allows people to be not, that are not caricature, uh, are not caricatures. You know, they're, they're very, Mm -hmm. they're fully fleshed people and they're having honest conversations and having a real struggle with this is what I feel is right. This is the law. I don't really know what the answer is, but maybe that there's an answer somewhere in there. And if we can just all come together and start a dialogue, maybe we can find Mm -hmm. a better way forward. And I feel like that's all we really need is let's have a dialogue and find a better way forward. But everybody is so concerned with shouting at each other that we're not taking the time to listen and, and talk yeah. with each other. And, and it's really, it's really refreshing to hear that, uh, that the show and that it received, that it's received that kind of response as well. Yeah. Well, I think also too, like you said, everyone wants to shout. And so on cable news, everyone's talking in quick little sound bites, but if you have to go to a th- the theater and you literally, literally you have to shut up for an hour and a half right. um, and listen to somebody talk. And so when you are forced to be quiet, maybe that's when you listen. And I think that's something that everybody says, Oh, we need to listen, but it's really hard for people to listen because everyone wants to talk all the time. So when you are forced to, to actually close your mouth and just listen for an hour, hour and a half, um, I think that's when you can literally open some hearts and minds. Um, and, you know, with the people next to you who are, you're seeing them laugh or react. Um, uh, that's, that's to me, the, the best way to, to affect change, um, is in sort of small groups like that. Um, you, you're not gonna, you're not gonna change anybody's mind over, over Twitter. That's just a losing no, battle. No, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you'll, you'll get a few enemies for sure, but, uh, you're not gonna change. <laughs> yeah, you can definitely make some enemies. <laughs> you're not gonna change anybody's minds. Um, now, now pivoting a little bit, from that, uh, from that discussion, I want to get into your uh, what has been 
your daughter's response to being exposed to the theater on a regular basis? Is this something where she's showing a, an interest in pursuing, uh, you know, a role in the theater? Is it something where she's kind of, uh, nor you know, it's very normalized. So it's like, yeah, this is just a thing. I don't really have to do it. Uh, what's kind of been her response in and out of all of these different projects that you and your wife have been involved in over the last several years? It's really interesting because, um, you know, we're both artists, my wife and I. My wife is an actress, and then she started moving into producing and directing as well. And she's also helped me write. She's collaborated with me on several things. Um, so we're both artists, you know, for better or worse. And our daughter, we just, you know, had to take her places. Um, we would take her to rehearsals. Uh, I remember when she was very little, my wife and I were both acting in plays. I was acting in a play in D.C. My wife was acting in a play in Baltimore. I would commute back and forth. We lived right there, like across the street from the theater. Um, and I would take our daughter to my wife on her 10-minute breaks so she could breastfeed her. Wow. Um, so she's literally been exposed to the theater since she was an infant. She's been <laughs> in theaters and backstage and green rooms since, since, since she was an infant. Uh, we took her to rehearsals uh, of my plays, um, and she would sit there and listen and then um, – reenact those plays with her babysitters you know, a day <laughs> later, um, not even knowing what she's talking about. So, so That's she, awesome. She's been, she's, it has been fed to her. It, it, and we never said like, hey, you got to do this. We're just literally like, you got to come with us because we can't afford a babysitter all the time. So you're just going to come with us. Right. You got to go to work. Yeah. Um, and, but now that she's, she's 13 now and she's, she's, she always showed an interest in acting a little bit and she's been in a couple little school plays and, you know, things like that. Um, she's very good, I think, but she's a little bit like saying, I don't want to be an actor. Like, you know, mommy, I want to be an artist. She's into drawing. Okay, um, that's sure. kind of her thing. But she also, I know that she's interested in auditioning for, um, a couple of performing arts high schools, which was, you know, she'll have to do in a year or two. Um, and, she wants to uh, do acting and art or audition for both and decide later what she wants to do. I, I think she, there's no doubt in my mind she's going to end up being some kind of artist, whether it's, you know, fine arts and drawing. She's always said she wanted to work for Marvel or Warner Brothers or something like that, Pixar. Oh, that's um, awesome. I think that's, that's like her dream job or it was at least for several years. Um, but I think she's also got a knack for acting. Um, and I got to say, it's obviously our fault because uh, <laughs> <laughs> she was just there from the beginning and in, in, in rehearsal rooms and theaters. But it's kind of cool, too, because she's super comfortable on a stage because of that. It's not daunting to her at all. So, sure. Yeah. No, that's really cool. I know we've had um, back earlier, or I guess it was uh, around March or April of last year, We I spoke to a lot of different artists at the Dallas Fan Expo, which is like a Dallas Comic-Con here. And uh, there were a mm -hmm. lot of, a lot of artists who there were some of these guys that started in the eighties and, and nineties. And then there was a guy that literally got started in 2008 cause he had been drawing forever and thought, man, this is my last chance to, to do something before I really just double down and, and parent and do something else. And he just kind of submitted stuff on a whim and, and, uh, he, and then he became the guy who started, you know, writing the uh, Riverdale comics. Uh, Joe Eisman was doing all this other stuff and doing some DC stuff. And he's like, well, this kind of uh, just, you know, didn't fall in my lap, but it just kind of worked out. And he's like, sometimes it, uh, you just submit stuff and it goes in a black hole and other times it works out. So, wow. so yeah. It's, That's amazing. Uh, yeah. And so it was really cool because a lot of the people we had spoken to had really put in the grind and put in the work and had worked their way up, you know, with their bootstraps kind of a thing. And he had been also working and honing his craft and he just kind of 
submitted something and it was picked up and they went, Hey, do you want to do this? And he started doing all this stuff for Archie comics and, and that has a fun, done a bunch of other stuff as well. So yeah. Uh, but yeah, so tell so so all all of that to say, if your daughter is interested in doing that, it sounds like it's never too late to to start applying and start uh, writing stuff for them. So there you go. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's yeah, uh, that's really cool. So, what has been the? I guess what would be since we're starting to kind of wrap up, what has been the most memorable or uh, I guess how do I want to frame this? Uh, yeah, we'll say what's what's the the fondest parenting memory that you have? Huh. Uh, God, a bunch of them come to mind. Um, I always, I do always immediately think about those sort of three months when I was the, you know, basically the dad, the the one parent. My wife was in, in a play. She was the lead in this musical in San Francisco, and it was just. It was more than a full-time job. The hours were just sort of crazy for her. And when she does, when she was home, she was just exhausted. Um, so I was just kind of doing everything, and I had days, you know, totally. It was just me and our daughter. She's a little. I mean, she's still in a stroller. She's not talking yet. It's actually a really cute age. Seven. She was. It was at seven, eight, nine months. Well, how old she was when we were there yeah uh and i was just trying to be like where are we gonna go how many times can we go to the zoo right um but it was just really it was kind of fun it was hard and it was but it was fun and i felt like you know i got to know her i think that's probably where i bonded with her you know my wife breastfed uh up until that point and then i think finally at some point she was like i can't you know, do this. It's just, you know, I, sure. I'm not going to be there enough. And so we started doing the bottle and I was like, okay, now I'm actually the parent. Um, right. So that's one, one that I always think about. I just think about those, those kind of three months. Um, but there's a, a, a ton of others uh, at every age. And it, it's such a cliche. You always think like, Oh, this is the best age. And, um, yeah, uh, yeah. It, it, each one, each one is amazing and unique and fantastic. Um, but I, I think if I had to pick one, that's, that's my favorite is those, those times in San Francisco, it was just the two of us sort of me pushing her in the stroller up those crazy hills and, you know, just... <laughs> right, right, right. Oh, that's so cool. That is really awesome. You are, you are correct in that. It's always a cliche that people are, are, Oh, this is the best age. No, this is the best age. And really it's every single age is the best age. And I've learned that you've got to just soak every single second up because you look up and then, you know, in my case, my daughter just turned four. In your case, your daughter is 13. And then my son is, you know, inching mm. ever closer to two years old. So it's just, you really got to... Oh, you got little ones. Yes, I do. I do. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm trying, you know, I'm trying to soak it all up. But before I know it, they're going to be 13 and 15. And I don't know, I won't know what to do with myself. So, but... I, uh, I think it's a somebody else's quote that everybody sort of says, but I just remember John Leguizamo saying it about parenthood and he said you know um the days are long but the years are short yes um, yes yeah so it's just it's a also a cliche but a really true one because yes. I, I mean I, I think back i was like oh i remember when she was seven months and literally i can recall it just like it was yesterday now she's 13 and you know very very different but you know we sat here today and we played uno together you know you know before dinner so um <laughs> did you win she hasn't no, she wins all the time. Oh, no, gotcha. She's really good at it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, she hasn't completely decided to be a teenager that doesn't want to ever talk to us again. So th we haven't lost her yet. That's awesome. All right, well, really cool. So before we segue into the dad joke segment of the episode, Jason, what do you have coming up that myself and our listeners should keep an eye out for? Um, well, 
Brainchild. It's on Netflix, so it means it's there uh, for everybody to consume and binge anytime they want. Um, yes. It's been really cool to see people. Uh, you know, the show came out in in November, uh, and I think it was kind of a slow burn for people. And I think a lot of people are just discovering it now. Um, so I would absolutely recommend Brainchild to anybody with kids, and even if you don't have kids, I know friends of mine uh, in New York that don't have kids and still love the show. Uh, I would I would absolutely recommend that. Um, Church and State. Um, you can buy copy of the play um play service or you can look and see maybe it's playing at a theater somewhere near you um and uh hopefully the movie will come out in a couple years but yeah i'm working on some other stuff too but nothing is like ready to sure to talk about yet so very cool those are the things well thank you so much jason all right now we are pivoting to uh my favorite segment which is the dad jokes of the week uh this is the segment where i hurl dad jokes at our at my poor guest and force them to laugh along as the audience (laughs) groans but it's all right i can't hear the audience so it works out um but before i get started i always like to offer the guest first crack so jason do you have any dad jokes you would like to offer up today Oh, you know, give me a minute to think of some. I, okay. I have a ton. My dad makes dad jokes all the time. <laughs> uh, Fair enough. He, he's been making them before anybody said, oh, that's a dad joke. He was making them when I was, you know, like five, six, seven years old. So right. yeah, give me a second. I'll think of some. Okay. I literally, I'll tell you this too. He sent me a birthday card a couple months ago. My birthday was a couple months ago. And it says, it says dad joke, bad joke. That's, that's what it says on the front. <laughs> um, so he's very into dad jokes. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, all right. Well, cool. Well, I'll go ahead. I've just got a couple. So, uh, Jason, what did the officer molecule say to the suspect molecule? I don't know. I've got my eye on you. Eye on. Eye on. Yeah, there you go. Dad joke. Yeah, there it is. Uh, and the other one that I have got for <laughs> you is, uh, Jason, what do you call somebody with nobody and no nose? I don't know. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Uh, yeah. Woohoo. That was a good one. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it was good. It was good. All right. Uh, Jason, last chance. You got any dad jokes? I can't think of any. That's oh, okay. I'm so I wish I'd been more prepared. I'm sorry. It's okay. That's why I don't tell you ahead of time because I like to I like to spring oh, it on good. people in the moment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but all right. Very cool. Well, uh, Jason, if our listeners want to follow you, what is the best way for them to do that? Um, I think if you... I'm on Twitter. It's J O W in like I N N Y C. I picked that name really early, uh, <laughs> and I'm now I'm locked into it. But that's what it is. J O W in N Y C. Uh, I'm on Twitter and also Facebook. Jason Odell Williams. You can find me there. I think those are the two places where I am on social media the most. I haven't quite figured out Instagram yet. Um, I'm just over the age limit, I think, of, of <laughs> Instagram being acceptable. <laughs> uh, you'd be uh, surprised. Very cool. All right, Jason, well, we need a hashtag for this episode. Should we use hashtag church and state? Uh, you can use hashtag church and state, but you got to spell out the and, A-N-D, yes. otherwise it uh, cuts off. That is correct. <laughs> it will not It will not count. So church, A-N-D, and state. Very cool. All right. Well, listeners, uh, stick around for next week. We'll have another great episode for you. And until next time, hashtag church and state and hashtag be a better dad. If you know of an interesting person or story that needs to be told, please reach out to me at detoxpodcast at gmail.com. That's D-T-A-L-K-S podcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out via Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Detox Podcast or visit DetoxPodcast.com. Also, be sure to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes if you like the show. 
It only takes a few seconds and it really helps us out. Link is in the show notes. Finally, thanks for listening. Please come back next week when we'll have another interesting conversation. And special thanks to my producers, Ben Lawant and Galan Aldaco. Without your help and support, this show wouldn't be possible. Thanks so much, guys. Detox is a production of Vocal. For more information and more programming, please visit vocalnow.com. That's V-O-K-A-L-N-O-W dot com.